0: have your Bibles, you can turn with me in 1 Samuel 24, or you can follow along on the screens behind me, or your phone, your tablet, whatever you got that you could read along with us. 1 Samuel chapter 24 is where we're going to look today. We're going to look at the first seven verses, just the first seven verses. We're really going to cover the whole chapter, but I'm not going to read it all. We'll cover it as we go. 1 Samuel chapter 24, hear the reading of God's Word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, Love Without Return. Love Without Return. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that you have loved us in so many ways without a proper return. What we give back to you in all our praise is just a drop of what you deserve. And so God, we pray that you would help us to be filled up with your love so that we can love others in the same way. We pray in Christ's name, amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been called tulip mania. Tulips, these fragile beautiful, exotic flowers. Maybe you've seen them before, right? They were sweeping across Holland in the early 1600s. And everyone was in this craze of wanting to buy tulips. It started with the wealthy who were wanting to buy them up to have these exotic flowers kind of show their prominence and their affluence. But then it kind of trickled down to the common folk. And now the common folk, they were making Obscene uh, sacrifices and, and selling all that they had to try to get these tulips and to get in on this craze. Let me give you a, a hint of how, how how ridiculous it had gotten. At one point, at the highest I think it was 1636, the highest price that they had, tulips, flowers. Let me remind you, flowers were being sold for the price of houses. for the price of houses investors kept putting money into it and putting money into it and they're getting their money back so they kept investing more and investing more and the price kept going up until February of 1637 and then it crashed and it crashed hard people lost fortunes people lost their life savings people were in turmoil the the economy in Holland completely collapsed everything was horrific It's the first example that historians can find of a documented investment bubble bursting. And and people argue now, and I don't know all the arguments, so I'm not going to try to pretend like I do. They argue about why it happened. But everyone agrees on this. Everyone agrees what happened. Tulips became a bad investment. Tulips, at one time, you could put money into it and then get more money out, and now all of a sudden, you put money in and you lost everything, because the definition of a bad investment is you don't get a return, right? You don't get a return. That, that's the common wisdom, and, and that's, that's what's probably wise if you're talking about money, and, and, and the real question is, what am I going to get out of it, Right? What am I going to receive if I'm going to invest into something? That's the primary question people ask. The problem is we take that same thinking about money, about the economy, and we apply it to relationships. And we ask that same question, well, what am I going to get out of it? If I invest in you, if I love you, if I care about you, if I give towards you, what, what am I going to get out of this? What, what is the return on my investment in this relationship? Maybe you've thought that before. You probably haven't said it because it feels weird to say it that way, right? But you feel that. You, you feel this sense that I want to be around people who are going to pour into me, not take from me. I want to be around people who encourage me, not discourage me. I want to be around people who build me up, not tear me down, right? And there's, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. We, we like that and we want to be around those people because there's something life-giving about that. But then what do you do with your enemies? What do you do with the people in your life that are what I would call an inevitable enemy? The person you just can't get away from. The people who, you, you know, no matter where you go, there they are. And they're not returning the love. How do we love them? See, the Bible has this radical command, and we forget how radical it is. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Listen, this is why it's so radical. Because enemies are a bad investment. Enemies are a bad investment. You pour into an enemy, and they don't give love back to you, usually. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus is saying, he's saying, you think you're great at loving, but you love those who love you back. That's a great investment. He says, even the tax collectors do that because the tax collectors are good with money. They they know how to make a good investment. They'll love someone who's going to love them back. He says, but what about the people who don't love you back? That's the measure of your love. That's the measure that we're looking for. Listen, if you're going to love as God calls us to love, if we're going to love those who don't love us back, it's going to take a different approach. That's what I want to look at today. And so we're continuing our series through the book of 1 Samuel, and we've been walking through it a couple weeks now, and we're coming to this place where we're looking at relationships. And last week... Last week, we looked at Jonathan and David's friendship, and we looked at how basically Jonathan and David had committed to each other's thriving. They wanted to see each other do well. They wanted to see each other flourish and thrive, and so they were committed to each other in their friendship, but this week, it's a different kind of relationship. It's not how do you love your friends, but how do you love your enemies? Because that's a whole different relationship. And so now we pick up in the story where David is being chased by King Saul. And King Saul is jealous because he's heard that David is going to be the next king. He's going to take his throne. And so Saul is trying to kill David. He's chasing him through the wilderness from this place to that place to this place to that place. And David, for chapters now, has been basically slipping through Saul's hands, barely escaping at the last minute. And now the chase comes to this point where... He can't get away. And what we realize is David is just one step away from death by his enemy, and yet David still continues to love his enemy, Saul. How does he do that? How does he love someone who continues to hate him back? That's what I want to look at. So first, if you're taking notes today, we got to look at the choice of love. The choice of love. This is the first point. Look at verse 3 with me. Let's jump into the story. It says this, And he came to the sheep fields, by the way, where there was a cave. That's David. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So the chase has now come to this place where David is cornered in a cave. And uh, they're, they're in the Engedi wilderness that is just on the western bank of the Dead Sea. And David and his men are hiding in this cave, 600 of his soldiers, right? They're hiding in this cave, and it's kind of a humorous scene. In comes King Saul. Saul walks into the cave looking for a place to go to the restroom. That's what it means in the text, to to relieve himself. Saul's looking for a little privacy. Saul's looking to get away from his people, to, to go have a little alone time. And there he is, the king on his throne, if you will. Right, The king is sitting on his throne, managing his business, and behind him in the darkness are David and 600 soldiers. Saul has taken off his armor, he's put down his weapons, he's, he's taken off his robe and put it to the side of him. Saul is sitting on his throne, if you will, completely vulnerable and completely unaware. And now David's men, they're they're in the background. They're whispering to each other. Now they're whispering to David, hey, 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 listen to this. And look at what he says in verse four. It says, here is the day of which the Lord had said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you, right? David's men are saying, this is so easy. It must be God. It must be God. You ever thought that to yourself? This is so easy. It must be God. I mean, they're they're just saying, this is God's providence. God has provided for us a way for you, David, to be the next king. All you have to do is kill him. He's right there. We've got 600 of us, and it's just one man on the toilet. (laughs) I mean, this is so easy. And at first, David begins to believe him. He sneaks up close so Saul can't hear him. He cuts a corner off his robe. And immediately he's convicted. Because the corner, cutting a piece of his robe off was, was kind of symbolic of saying, I'm taking your kingdom. I'm taking a piece of your kingdom to show you my power over you. So David believes it for a moment. Then he's convicted. He's heartstruck. And look at what he says to his soldiers in verse 6. It says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. What David is saying by that is he's saying this. He's saying, I know that I'm the anointed one. I know that God has said I'm going to be the next king. I know God's will for my life is going to be this. However, if God's will is going to come in my life, it needs to come in his way. And his way is not that I would use violence or harm or or any kind of mischief towards the king who is there right now. I need to honor him and love him, which means it's going to be slower. I I can either love the king, or I can either hate the king and be king right now, or I could love the king and be king later. And the way of God is for me to love him. But listen, love is often a slower choice. It's a slower choice. It reminds me of Jesus when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by his enemy. Right, If you know the story of Jesus' temptation, he's out in the wilderness praying for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting, and Satan comes to Jesus and he tempts him, and when he tempts him, he gives them these multiple temptations, but one of the temptations is this. He takes him up on a mountain and he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, and he says to Jesus, he says, you can have all the kingdoms if you'll just bow down and worship me. And, and this, is, this is exactly what's happening to David. David and Jesus are both put in this position where y- they know who they are. They know what God has called them to do. Jesus knows that he's the anointed one. Jesus knows that he's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to be crowned in his resurrection. And yet Jesus knows the only way his kingdom can come is God's way. Yeah. The only way God's will can be done in Jesus' life is for it to be done in God's way. And listen, Jesus knows that for him, that meant a cross. He knows it doesn't mean I'm going to conquer all the people and kill all the people. It means I'm going to die for the people. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus knew that it wasn't going to come from attacking his enemies, but loving his enemies. See, listen, the temptation for David and the temptation for Jesus are the same temptation, efficiency. Efficiency. That's the temptation. The temptation is to say, I'm going to do whatever God wants for my life, but I'm going to do it faster, and I'm going to do it quicker, and I'm going to do it more efficiently so that I can get what I want now. I don't care what God's way is. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to go slow. I'm going to choose to love my enemies, which is a slower choice. Let me ask you this before we move on. Who do you think your enemy is? Don't look to your neighbor to the right or left. I'm I'm just I'm not trying to set you up. Who do you, who do you think your neighbor is? Because a lot of folks, we, we think that that label of, of enemy is some kind of uh, evil that we can put upon somebody, right? It feels weird. It feels mean. It feels wrong to just call someone an enemy because we feel like once we've put that label on them, now it's permanent, yeah. right? And, and so we don't want to label someone an enemy, so we We don't actually love them as enemies. We try to pretend like they're being our friends because we're afraid to label them. But let me let you in on a secret. The Bible talks about long-term enemies and short-term enemies. Long-term enemies might be the people that are against you for most of your life or or for a long season of your life. And and that's what we think of when we think of enemies. But enemies can actually be short-term. They could be for an hour. They could be for a day. They could be for a month. They, they can be for a season of your life that, that maybe it's somebody close to you. right? Maybe you're in a season right now where your spouse is against you. Maybe you're in a season right now where your kids are against you. Amen, somebody. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're in those seasons where someone is against your thriving. They're, they're against your, your wholeness. They're against what you're, you're about. And so for that moment, they're an enemy. And if you can come to the point to say, I can label them, or or not not label them, "I, I can understand them without putting that label on them forever, now you can know how to respond appropriately. And how do you respond to an enemy? You love. And listen, here's the hard part. That choice to love is a slower choice. It's a slower choice. It's slower to pause and listen to your kids rather than rush by them and assume things about them. It's slower to show compassion to your coworker when they're complaining about you to your boss rather than try to tear them down. It's slower to forgive your family members who've harmed you in the past rather than cutting them off and being done with them. It's slower to reach across the political aisle and listen to someone who you disagree with rather than call them names and cut them off. Do you see how often love is really slow? It's really slow. The the temptation with our enemies is to take the the easy route, to take the efficient route, and just say, you know what, I'm done with you. I'm going to avoid you. I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to talk bad about you so I can write you off and be done. But love... Love is slow. So what in the world would cause us to choose that route to love? That's what I want to look at next. Let's look at that real quick. Number two, the heart of love, the heart of love. Look at verse eight. This is great. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. Now imagine the scene for a moment. Saul just gets up off his throne. He he, he, clothes himself again, walks out of the cave, and behind him, he hears David's voice. I mean, his stomach must have dropped as soon as he hears David's voice because he thought he was all alone. He thought he was in the privacy of his own life, doing his thing, and now he hears David's voice behind him. He turns around to see David, and David is bowed down in homage, giving honor to the king. And when David stands up in David's hand, is a piece of his royal robe. I mean, could you imagine? Saul's mind must be all twisted up, thinking, what, what is happening right now? A- am I going to die? Am I vulnerable? What is going on? And then David speaks to Saul. He says this in verse 9. He says, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? In other words, David is saying to Saul, Saul, you've been believing lies. You've been believing lies. You've been believing your people who are telling you that I'm against you and I've never been against you. I've only been for you. I've only been for you. Your whole kingship, I've only been for you. In fact, here's the evidence. And he holds up the, uh, the corner of the robe and he says to him, I could have killed you and I spared you. I could have taken your life and instead I gave you life. Do you see it? What he's saying to Saul is, here's the proof that I'm not your enemy. I am for you, even though you're treating me like an enemy. You've tried to take my life, but I've given you life. Now David goes on to expose their heart in verse 13. Look at what he says. As the proverb of the ancients say, or says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. See, David quotes this ancient proverb that would have been similar to Jesus, what Jesus says later. Jesus says this. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? It's the same idea. What David is saying is, Saul, what you are doing, how you are treating me comes from inside of you, right? How I am treating you comes from inside of me. David is vindicating himself, but he's also condemning Saul. He's trying to expose their hearts. To say, this is what's in you, Saul. The reason you're treating me this way is because of what's in your heart. The reason I'm treating you this way is because of what's in my heart. And it exposes both of them. It exposes them. In other words, put it this way, the actions we take towards those who are against us exposes what's in us. It exposes what's in us. Or to put it another way, nothing exposes our hearts like our enemies, like our enemies. And th- this is where the inefficiency of love actually helps us. Because when you choose to love, and it's, it's inefficient, it's going to be slow, it's going to be messy, it's going to be uh, hard and, and, and confusing. But here's the beauty of it. Because it slows you down, you can't take the fast route. The fast route is this. Oh, I'm just going to harbor bitterness. I'm going to assume the worst. I'm going I'm to hate them from a distance. I'm going to cut them off and never talk to them. I'm going to give them the cold shoulder. I'm going to unfriend them, if people still do that. I don't even know if people still do that. You know, whatever it is, but you're going to take the fast route and just cut them off. But the inefficiency of love says, I'm going to slow down, and now because I have to go slow, I have to actually see myself. I have to actually realize what's going on in my life, what's causing me to act this way towards them. It really opens you up to say, I am being exposed here. And maybe, just maybe, that's why we don't like love towards our enemies. Because maybe we don't want to be exposed. We don't want to slow down and see. But listen, what we do is never just what we do. What we do comes from who we are. In other words, how we treat our enemies, those who are against us, whether it's for a moment or for a long time, those who are against us is an indicator of our hearts. And so when we're impatient with them, something is going on with us. When we are quick to judge them, something is going on in us. When we are nurturing that bitterness towards them, something is going on inside of us. When we're wishing their demise... There's something happening. Let me ask you this morning. What, what is your treatment of your enemies revealing about your heart? What is it revealing about your heart? Well, what is the outward action, the outward emotion, the outward expression that you're giving towards your enemies? What is it revealing about what's happening inward in your life? See, at the core of who we are, if you get down to the hatred that's within us, what's really happening is there's some insecurity there. And really, this is the contrast between David and Saul in the text. David is is a man who is secure in the love of God, and Saul isn't. Saul has been wrestling for for chapters now in 1 Samuel about this this, uh, approval and affirmation from God, and he's always trying to earn it, and always trying to earn it. And here's David in the cave full of God's love. In fact, if you've ever read Psalm 57, Psalm 57 was written in this cave in this moment. And listen to how David prays in Psalm 57. He says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Takes refuge. Do you hear that? David is saying this. David's saying, God, you are my refuge. You are the place that I am filled up. You are the place that I am satisfied. You are the place that I have all that I need. And because I have you, I have enough. No matter what happens with my enemies, if Saul never loves me back, I have enough in you. David is secure in the Lord. And so David comes to Saul and he says, look, let's expose our hearts for a moment. My heart is full of the Lord's love and your heart isn't. And the reason I can love you and you don't love me back is because the Lord has loved me. That's what he's saying. Listen, the only way you can love an enemy without any returning love is if you're full of the love of the Lord. If you are full of him, you can then love without any return. But that's the key difference. There's a a security, there's a fullness, there's a power that's in that. And so what's our hope to have that when our hearts are exposed? This is where we'll close. This last point, the promise of love, the promise of love. Look at verse 16 again. It closes like this. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. The language here is so intimate and personal. David, earlier in verse 11 in the chapter, says to Saul, uh, my father, my father, right? He calls him my father. And then now Saul returns it and says, my son. Now, they're not saying this as people who are trying to butter each other up. This is actually true. David had married Saul's daughter, Michal, and so he's his son-in-law. This is family we're talking about, right? You, you thought your family had drama and issues, David and Saul, Saul is trying to kill his son-in-law. And yet here in this moment, Saul's heart is exposed, he's opened up, and he realizes, you're right, David. You are more righteous than me. And the word righteous there, it means this relational righteousness, this relational justice. You're treating someone the way they deserve to be treated. And so he's saying, you are treating me rightly. You're treating me rightly. You have loved me without return, and I've, ret- I've given back to you evil for your good. But Saul still has one more request in verse 21. Look at what he says. He says, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Saul. See, Saul is showing evidence of being remorseful, but not fully repentant yet. He's remorseful. He weeps. He, he's sad that it's come to this point, but he doesn't really care about anyone but himself. He, he still only cares about his legacy. He still only cares about what's going to happen after he dies, that people remember him well. And so he makes this request to David. He says, when I'm gone, make sure you leave my legacy. And maybe the most surprising thing in this whole chapter is David says yes. David says yes. There, there's no reason for David to say yes. There's, there's no reason that he should say to his greatest enemy, yes, I'll, I'll maintain your legacy. The only reason David does it is out of love. The only reason he does it, it's not merited, it's just continuous mercy. Mercy. Love in its purest form is unearned favor. It's unearned favor. Howard Thurman was a key figure in the civil rights movement. He basically mentored a whole generation of, of activists and is well-known in some circles and unknown in other circles because he was behind the scenes. He pastored uh, the earliest interracial church in America. He, he pioneered in so many different ways, influenced millions of people's lives. And yet when he wrote his autobiography... Howard Thurman dedicated his autobiography to an unnamed stranger in the railroad station. Now, this man, who's who's known by thousands and influenced all these people, why would he dedicate it to an unknown stranger in a railroad station? Here's why. Well, he grew up in Daytona Beach, right around the corner from here, and uh, he was uh, raised in the Jim Crow South during an era where there were no high schools for black children in his city. And so basically they cut off education at 7th grade so that you couldn't earn 8th grade education to get to high school so that no one could complain. And so what they did was they had, to, they had to send students out of Daytona to go to high school. And Howard Thurman gets this opportunity to go to Jacksonville. That was the nearest high school to Daytona. And he gets the opportunity, but he has to find transportation. Here's this 8th grade boy trying to earn his way to Jacksonville to go to school because his family couldn't afford to send him on the train. And so he worked all summer, saved every penny he could, bought the train ticket, goes to the train station with his luggage with him, and he shows up and they tell him, you got to pay extra for your luggage. And so now he's with this choice. I'm either going to leave behind everything I own and go to Jacksonville, or I'm going to leave behind my dream in Jacksonville and go home and he just collapse, collapses in grief. He starts to weep on the stairs of the train station. And as he's weeping there, grieving what's happening, he looks up through his tear-filled eyes and he sees a pair of shoes in front of him. And he looks up and there's this tall, scruffy old black man looking at him. And he says, little man, what, why are you crying? And he starts to tell him his story. He tells him, I've come this far. I've worked so hard. I've done all of this. And now I don't think I'm going to be able to go. And as he hears his story, he walks over to the counter and he pays. He pays for his luggage and his ticket. And then he walks away and he never sees him again. He walks away and never sees him again. Howard Thurman looked back on his, his life of all this illustrious uh, you know, accomplishments and achievements and he says, it was that moment in my life that changed Everything. It was that moment in my life that changed my my history for my family, for my my friends, everything that I've done in my life. It was that moment that that man gave when I didn't deserve it. He gave me unearned favor that I had no merit for. That's what love looks like in the moment. That's this, this purest form of love. It's unearned favor. It's the love we find in the favor of Jesus See, the Bible tells us that when Jesus came, his own people, us, did not receive him. We didn't love him back. He came when we were sinners. He came when we were lost. We didn't earn his grace. We didn't earn his favor. Yet Jesus says, I'm coming to love you. You may have heard of John 3.16, but John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, Jesus came to save his enemies. He came to save those who were against him. He came to love the loveless. He came to be merciful to the merciless. He came to show favor to the unfavorable. He loved us first. See, when Jesus loves us as his enemies, he shows his heart. His heart is fully exposed as he's hanging there on the cross dying for our sins, enduring the pain of our rejection at the hands of his adversaries that he created himself, he cries out, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Do you hear it? His heart isn't bitter. His heart isn't impatient. His heart isn't violent. His heart is overflowing with the purest of love. For you, for me, he loves us enough to repay our evil with his good. He loves us enough to repay our harm with his care. He loves us enough to repay our violence with his death and resurrection. Jesus is is pure, pure for his enemies, you and me, and it's what empowers our love towards our own enemies. That's the work that he does in us. See, do you need Jesus' love today to, to receive that love so that you can now give it? In other words... You can't give what you haven't received. Saul couldn't love his enemy because he hadn't received that kind of love from his heavenly father. Once you receive it from Jesus, now you can give it because you're full. You can't love on empty. You can't love without being continually filled up. You need the love of Jesus. And he says, that's the kind of love I give. I give love that's unearned favor for the people who don't even want me. I'm going to pursue them. For the people who are going the other way, I'm going to chase them down because I love them. I love them. He offers that to us today. He offers us to receive that kind of love, to be transformed. And when we receive that by faith, He transforms our hearts to then go and love the way He's loved us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. We are so grateful for your love. So grateful that you are a God who enters into our mess. And you chose to love us deeply and slowly. You you took 33 years to walk among us, to love us in every moment of your life, to be patient with us, to be kind to us, to listen, to be careful be strong and courageous, to speak truth. Lord, you've loved us in every way, in all moments. And so, Lord, thank you that today, as you invite us to yourself, the promise stands. You will fill us up. And as we move to the table, Lord, we ask that you would indeed nourish us even now. We pray in your name. Amen.